Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 17, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning, and we are welcoming you to a Step 10 panel. By working Steps 1 through 9, you've succeeded in transforming your life. But if you try to stay where you are without growing anymore, you'll start dying, not physically, but spiritually. In step 10, you continue to take personal inventory, and whenever you are wrong, promptly admit it. You also continue to grow in effectiveness, understanding, and spirit. You don't work step 10 for a day, a week, or 10 years. You work it for the rest of your life. Working step 10 means continuously working steps 4 through 9 on a daily basis. Here to share with us this morning on the implementation of step 10 in their daily lives are three recovered compulsive overeaters. This morning we welcome Rebecca, Kim, and Victoria to the line, and we appreciate your time in sharing with us about working step 10 in your daily life. And we'll start this morning with Rebecca. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning. My name is Rebecca F. from Connecticut. I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. And it is an honor to be speaking to you this morning about my reflections on Step 10. I say I practice Steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, but the truth is, It's 11 and 12 that I feel I have down pretty well. Step 10, maybe not so much. Wouldn't you know I'd get asked to speak about the one in which I have the least amount of confidence? I figured it was a sign, an opportunity sent from my higher power for me to embrace Step 10 more fully. So reluctantly and enthusiastically at the same time, I accepted the offer. Bring it on, I say. I'm along for the ride on this broad highway. <clears throat> so where do I go from here? To the big book. Where else? The discussion on Step 10 continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, starts on page 84 in the fourth edition. With This thought brings us to Step 10. What thought is that, I asked myself. Ah, the step nine promises. Painstaking, yep. Amazed, yep. New freedom and new happiness, Uh uh-huh. No regrets, sure. Serenity and peace, hallelujah. Benefit others, that's what I'm told. Disappearance of uselessness and self-pity, yes, that's true too. Selfishness, self-seeking, and fear replaced with interest in others. New attitude, new outlook, intuitive know-how. Oh, my Lord, that's me, that's me. Or should I say, that's you, that's you. That is you doing for me what I could not do for myself. And believe it or not, all this fabulousness is considered not to be extravagant. Pinch me, for on my own, left to my own devices, 
before I learned that I had an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind and subsequently put down my binge foods and compulsive overeating behaviors and picked up the spiritual toolkit and worked the steps as if my life depended on it, let's just say I was in the quicksand. I was the actor who tried to run the show. I was the toe stepper on her. I was the bull in the china shop. I was the deflector, the manipulator, the people pleaser, the victim, the malcontent, the knew better than anybody. Had to do it my way or the highway, self-righteous, self-loathing, Betty Crocker meets Alfred Hitchcock, Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. And so deep in denial, I didn't see it. I just thought I was fat and that I was always right. It's really a wonder people put up with me. Back to page 84. Have I vigorously commenced this way of living, of taking personal inventory and setting right new mistakes as I go along? When I was newly recovered, I experienced a fair amount of angst as new issues came up and I processed them by doing my step tens which consisted of applying steps four through nine on each one individually. It works like a charm every time. How much selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear do I have in me these days? Not so much anymore. Makes sense, though. I've ceased fighting anything, anyone, even food. I have sanity now. I recoil as if from a hot flame now. I react sanely and normally now, and it comes automatically. I'm neutral. I'm Switzerland, safe and protected. Problem removed. Not cocky nor afraid. To a greater and greater extent, God conscious. Vital sixth sense. Happy, joyous, and free. I'm not resting on my laurels. I'm making those deposits into my spiritual bank account by practicing prayer and meditation on a daily basis, which, of course, is step 11. As far as step 12 goes, I do carry the message to the compulsive overeater who is still sick. But the second part of 12, practicing these principles in all my affairs, I probably haven't given that one its full due. I'll have to take a closer look at that. Hmm. I suppose wherever I am falling short on that part of Step 12 is where Step 10 might come in handy. I have areas of weakness that I do need to work on. Yes, I'll get busy on those next. There may even be some laurels in there that I've been resting on. So I have my work cut out for me, and in doing this exercise, more has been revealed to me. Luckily, on page 60, the big book tells me not to be discouraged. No one maintains perfect adherence. We're not saints, willing to grow along spiritual lines. Principles are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. I don't mean to imply that I don't do step 10s. I'm just saying that they aren't coming at me rapid fire like they did before. 
when I ruffle someone's feathers. I know I own up to it and apologize. I try to nip it in the bud, so less and less do my missteps turn into major issues that require full-blown step tens. Here are some examples of my step tens so you can get a sense of how they have worked for me. Early on in my recovery, I was involved in a telephone big book meeting. When I heard about a new telephone big book meeting that took place at the same time, I became conflicted. On the one hand, I wanted to try the new meeting. On the other hand, I felt obligated to the old meeting. I had the hardest time just following the directions in the big book about how to do a step 10. I asked people for advice. I filled out some random form I found online instead of using the inventory form I used in my step four. I stalled, I sputtered, I dragged it out. Every time I'd go back to my sponsor with this insight or that insight, she'd say I need to go back and try again. Finally, when I buckled down and stopped resisting and trying to do it my way instead of following the clear-cut directions as they are outlined in this book, I was able to hear my higher power speaking to me. Through doing this work, my truths were revealed to me. Instead of trusting and relying on God, I was holding on to core beliefs that were self-imposed and limiting. I am only as good as my word. I am responsible for other people's feelings. Avoid uncomfortable situations at all costs. Be subservient. I'm not good enough. The magic happened and I was free, relieved from the bondage of self. I think this next one exemplifies how all the steps of this program work in harmony to move us along our spiritual paths. When I first started working with my sponsor, she told me I didn't have to weigh and measure. I chose and continue to choose to weigh and measure but the experience of it shifted for me from tenseness and anxiety and constraint to peace of mind and enjoyment and appreciation for the scale as a useful tool. My logical brain convinced myself that if weighing was optional, then picking up a bite of something extra here and there was A-OK. Something about a green bean from what I can remember. I never brought it up. I had myself believing it was a non-issue. Fast forward a year and a half, now I'm recovered and I have a sponsee who is a newcomer to OA. She brings it up. Is it okay to pick on little bits of food? Say, for instance, some salad ingredients when preparing lunch for the next day? Sure it is. I do that too. Uh Uh-oh. What if I was passing off bad information? Now it's not just me about me anymore. I have a responsibility to another human being. Better check with my sponsor. I started out by saying this was my sponsee's concern, and as the words sputtered out of my mouth, I came around to fessing up that it was my concern as well. Yeah, I was told we do not eat spontaneously. Why would we eat anything more than what is contained in our meals? I was mortified. Enter step 10. I did my inventory, got clear about my selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fear. 
shared it with my sponsor, prayed about it, made my amends. The burden was lifted, and with no effort on my part, I have not picked up an extra bite of food since. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Over the past week, since I was invited to speak on Step 10, I've been working on what I am going to say in my presentation. It's been unfolding before my eyes. There has been something I've been avoiding dealing with for a long, long time. It has to do with not getting something done in my business. It's wrapped up in excuses about being too busy and not having enough time. It's costing me money, which in turn affects my family. It erodes my well-being. How can I address this group about Step 10 in good conscience with this elephant in the living room? I buckled down and worked through the Steps 4 through 9 process on this, and I believe that it has helped and that I am on my way with God's grace to setting this mistake right. Not only did I feel led to clean up that work issue, but I also found it necessary to face up to the fact that I had been stalling about doing it. It dawned on me to do another Step 10 on not doing my Step 10 and Step 11 inventories when they need to be done. Do I sound loopy, too analytical, OCD perhaps? Well, I am a compulsive overeater. Believe it or not, yes, indeedy, I went ahead with it. And when I answered the question, what would God have me be, here's what I heard. Happy. Joyous and free. Doing this work according to the instructions as they are laid out in the big book so that I can realize its rewards and in turn I can bear witness to those I would help of his power, his love, and his way of life. Before I close, I actually have an amends or at least a correction to make to all of you. At the last Attitude of Gratitude meeting, I shared that I couldn't believe that the next day was going to be my two-year anniversary of the day my sponsor told me I was recovered. It's no wonder I couldn't believe it. It wasn't true. I got the dates mixed up, and it was actually only my one-year anniversary. Even that is hard to believe. Relatively speaking, I am still somewhat of a newcomer. It blows my mind to think that as long as I continue to work this program one day at a time, more will be revealed to me and I will continue to grow along spiritual lines. Thank you all for showing up and taking the time to teach me the program of recovery from the wisest, seasoned, old-timer to the befuddled, greenest newcomer I wouldn't be here now, in this moment, as I am, if it weren't for all of you. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Rebecca. Now I welcome Kim to the line. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Leia. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Kim G, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey and so excited to be here this morning to share with you 
the absolute joy of step 10. Um, but I'm going to start out a little bit with what the big book tells me to do, um, which is I'm going to share a little bit about my story, a little bit about where I, you know, where I was, how I got here, and what my life is like now, um, to, just to show you the miracle that this program is. Um, like most of us, I, you know, we started to rely on food as a teenager, but the, the pinnacle of it was after I graduated um, college and I came home and I was decided to go to the doctor because my knees were hurting me. I was walking upstairs. I was getting short of breath. Um, you know, uh, my stomach was in distress. I knew there was some, some exotic disease wrong with me. And uh, so at the age of 23, I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed morbidly obese. And I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. How could he, how dare he tell me, not that I'm fat, not that I'm obese, but I'm not morbidly obese. And of course, being a compulsive overeater, my normal reaction that was that was I gained even more weight. So as it says in the doctor's opinion, you know, it says that I could not differentiate the true from the false, and my alcoholic life became the only normal one. Just give you a couple examples of what my normal life was like. You know, in college, there was a, a, a street that was called Fast Food Row, and I would get upset about whether it was a test or a boy not liking me or somebody, you know, calling me a name or you know, fear of even good things happening, doing well on a test, and fear of the expectations people would put on me. I would go to Fast Food Row, and I would order, you know, a, a meal for me and my imaginary boyfriend, and I would pretend I wouldn't know what he wanted. So I would say, well, let me, I better get the large fry because maybe he only wants the medium, but I'm not sure. And I would always order two sodas because that way the fast food lady would believe me. And then I would sit in the parking lot and eat both meals and then go to the next fast food restaurant and the next fast food restaurant. Another thing I did when I came home from college is if I got really upset, I, my um, family had a basement where we, there was a TV and I just made sure I was there alone and I would go out to the food store and I would buy three pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, I would buy Oreos, I would buy some sort of peanut cookie and um, an Enderman's cheese danish. And I would just sit there and I would eat one scoop and one scoop and one scoop across until my esophagus was even distorted. I knew that I had stuffed myself to the point there was no room for the food to go down my esophagus into my stomach. And I would simply take a break for a half hour and then I would start again. And then the other thing I used to do is I used to go to the food store and I would buy, I just remembered this recently, I would buy um, cake, the cheapest cake mix I could find and a tub of icing. And I would go home and I would throw the cake mix away because all I really wanted was the tub of icing. And I'd sit there and I'd eat the, the whole thing of icing. But the lady in the store wouldn't know that because I would buy the cake mix and she would think I was making a cake. So those were the, that was what my life was like. I couldn't differentiate the truth from the false. The alcoholic life was the only normal one. And, if, and at that point, a couple years later, I got fired from a job and I decided I had to get serious about this weight thing. And I was taught to be bulimic in college. You know, I could binge like my sorority sisters who were all beautiful, thin girls. I couldn't throw up like them, and I was so embarrassed. And there was a lot of cocaine use going on, and thank you, God, I didn't realize they were using cocaine for their weight because I think I would have done it if I knew that it was to control their weight. I did not realize that. Um, so I got into bulimia, and I worked on it, and I got good on it, and I lost some weight. And as most of us think, food and weight is our problem. So when I started to lose weight, why wasn't I getting happy? And I was terrified. And this bulimia was a 24-7 job. What am I going to do? 
and my mother was in OA, and I decided to go to OA just to prove that I wasn't a compulsive overeater. And when I went into an OA meeting, and you guys told me about going from fast food restaurant to fast food restaurant, and you told me about eating tubs of icing, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not alone. But then what happened was I, um, I, um, oh jeez. What happened was I would, um, I started to restrict because if you guys told me I could eat this much, if I ate half of it, that meant I was better than you. It meant that I was, I was, uh, I, I was stronger than you. So I dieted myself down to a size two. At my top size, I was a 24. I am now a size two. I've lost my period. I could not rely on the throwing up because that was wrong. So I started to rely on exercise, and I got to the point that I would run 10 miles on a Saturday morning, and I wouldn't be able to walk the rest of the weekend because my hip hurt so bad, but at least I walked that 10 miles. I, I ran that 10 miles. So I, in a way, you know, my problem was I did the steps like it was a twister game. You know, that old game twister from the 70s, and you put right hand on red and then left foot on blue, and you got all twisted up. I would decide, well, step two looks good today. Step four looks good tomorrow. Maybe I'll try that step six. Okay, I'll definitely decide to try step 12 because I was so arrogant. I thought I could, I could cure the world. And after six years of abstinence, I picked up because I was a untreated, un, untreated alcoholism. I was living in restless, irritable discontent, and I couldn't live like that anymore. And then I spent years getting six months here, eight months there, maybe even a year, and I would go back to the food. Another six months, another four months, back to the food. And then finally, two years ago, I broke my ankle. I Really bad. I mean, tore every ligament, was bedridden for two months, two, three months, found a big book study meeting. They were into the chapter, into action, and the, the moderator kept saying, it's not into feeling. It's not into self-analyzing. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what I used. So I, I used, tried to use OA to control my feelings, the way that I use food to control my feelings. I analyzed everything and never applied these steps. So I went back to the original recording because it was recorded like our meeting was. I could not find a sponsor. So I went to the recordings. I called recovered people every single day. I asked them to help me with where I was in the recordings and in the book. And I became recovered. And I have been recovered now for two years. And because of that, I can live today in steps 10, 11, and 12. Because what I found out is that these steps need to be done in order. I can't do a step 10 if I'm on step 2. I can't work step 12 and carry this message if I'm only on step 5. They're meant to do in order. So when I'm talking step 10 today, for those of you who are not there, please treat this as a show-and-tell operation. Please treat this as this is what you can do if you Stay where you are. Lean into the steps that you are and keep moving forward. And then step 10 can become a part of your life. So first I want to start out with a little bit about what step, step 10 is not. Because that was a big blockage for me. I thought step 10 was this checklist at night that I would go over how Kim was a good girl and how Kim was a bad girl. And I had a list of character defects, and I had a list of character assets, and I would check off which ones I did. And if the assets were more than the defects, Tim had a good day. But that's the, the nightly inventory is step 11. The nightly inventory is going through and asking God, how, let's constructively review our day. Step 10 is the everyday step. 
step 10 is, is the way that I walk with God every moment of every day so that I can live today undisturbed. And if I let everything build up throughout the day and wait till the nighttime to do that, I, I'm going to be back to restless, irritable, and discontent. Why do I think God's only available at night? God's available to me all through the day. So I just want to start with the, uh, on page 88. It says, lead alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in this simple way we have just outlined. And what is that simple way we have just outlined? It's the steps. So if I'm undisciplined, the answer isn't, get, isn't to get disciplined by me. How many meetings can I make? How many phone calls can I make? How many ways can I restrict myself? It's about working through these steps, asking God into every moment, and letting these steps discipline me in the principles instead of being run by my emotions and my thoughts and my will, because that was the root of my trouble. So we can't do these steps out of order. We need to lean to the steps that we're at and move forward so we can live in step 10. I just want to use one quick analogy before I go into the text. If you want to be a nurse, you're going to have to go to school to learn all those skills. You're going to have to learn how to start an IV. You're going to have to learn how to do wound care. You're going to have to learn how to dispense medication. But when you graduate and you pass all your tests, do you feel like a nurse yet? You still feel like a student. When you feel like a nurse is when you go into the hospital and every day you're starting IVs. Every day you're dispensing medication. Every day you're doing wound care. So what step 10 is, is we've learned the skill set of four through nine. We've learned how to do that, applying it to our past, the way the nursing student learns to start an IV by putting it into an orange or some sort of mannequin. And then, in step 10, I'm beginning to use it in the here and now. And this is why those promises, those tenth of promises come true, because I am living in the moment. I'm taking that skill set and I'm living in the moment. Now, one of my best friends growing up is a doctor, and she's had four children, and each child she took a three-month um, maternity leave. And she talked about how difficult it was to go back into the hospital from just three months. The medications changed. Procedures has changed. She said she would say, God, I hope nobody codes the first day I go back. My skill set has been rusty. I need to get back into the groove. It's the same thing with us. If we choose not to do step 10 for a certain amount of time, I'm only going to do step 10s on Tuesdays and Fridays every other week, we're going to get rusty. We're going to forget how to do it. So that's why it is a constant thing we have to do. So let's look what we have to do constantly. On page 84, that third paragraph, this thought brings us to step 10. And Rebecca kind of alluded to it. What is this thought? Look at the sentence before. They, meaning the nice step promises, will always materialize if we work for them. So what is that thought? If we work for them. So step 10 is going to work if we work for us. It suggests that we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set wrong, set right any new mistakes we go along. So if we're continuing it, it means we've done it before. We've learned those practices in steps four through nine, and now we're going to continue to do those skill sets. So if you're on step three, how can you go to step 10 because you, haven't, you have nothing to continue because you haven't done the skill set yet? We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. Vigorously. Not half-heartedly. Half not occasionally. We vigorously. It's an intensive thing. We entered the world of the spirit. 
Our next function is to grow into understanding and effectiveness. Effectiveness is a huge word. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. So I, as a recovered person, am going to live in 10, 10, 11, and 12, which is a continuation of working the steps 1 through 9. When these continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And those are the things we look for in step four. When these crop up, we are human beings. This stuff is going to crop up, but now we have a way of living. We have a design for living to address this. We ask God at once, once again, not at night, not when we're just upset. We ask God at once to remove them. Because now we have that connection open. God is flowing through us. So we're going to ask him at once to remove selfishness, resentment, dishonesty, and fear. We discuss them immediately, immediately with someone. Step five. So first of all, I'm asking God, and then I'm going to someone who's recovered and saying, this is what's going on. This is what I'm hearing. Can you help me make sure this is of God and not of my ego? Then we resolutely turn our thoughts, we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. So this whole process is getting rid of self. And the best way to get rid of self is to help other people. This doesn't mean people in a way. If I am doing a test up on something at work, maybe I'll go to a coworker and ask her if they need additional help. If I'm doing something in my family, maybe I'll call my brother and say, you know, Jeff, I'm just wondering, is there any way that you need help this weekend? I have some time off. I didn't know maybe you need help, help with something going on. So I'm resolutely turning away from self because self is the problem. You know, when I go to someone, I heard this recently, don't be, go to well, your 10-step go-to team. I have this go-to team, not just my sponsor, because my sponsor is not my God. I go to other recovered people, and I'm going to go to people that are going to tell me the truth. I'm going to go to people who aren't afraid to hurt my feelings. Because I don't need someone who's going to co-sign on the crap that I have done for years. I need someone who's going to refer me back to this book. And I did this this week, and I wrote down this girl I called, and I told her the details of selfishness, dishonest, resentment, and fear. And she listened to me, and she goes, well, those are very interesting facts or interesting information. But it sounds to me like your problem is self. So how do we get rid of self and get God into this? Sounds like you're managing your own life right now. How's that work for you? And she got me right back into what step 10 is about. What is God's will? You know, I was telling her my problem was, do I pick A or do I pick B? And she said, why are you limiting God? Ask God what he wants from you. Ask God what he, where he wants you to be. Get out of the second column of step four. I listed all the causes, the causes. And let's get into... The problem is self. Empty yourself of self and get back to God. That is what step 10 is about. Emptying myself of self so I can get back to God. And I'm not going to go through all the 10-step promises, but that is the, it says the last part here. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So if you're not feeling these promises, that means if you're not having this experience, it means you have more work to do in the prior steps. Because the big book promises us, if we are at this point, these are the promises we are going to feel. So I'm going to bring out just a couple of them. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. 
So I think that common thing, oh, I've got to avoid people, places, and things. I've got to avoid people, places, and things. If you're in a place where you have to avoid people, places, and things, then you're not recovered. Because I can go anywhere and I am not going to be, you know, I'm gonna, I don't have to avoid temptation because I have a sense of neutrality. I am safe and protected. I am not sworn off. The problem has been removed. And as long as I do this fit spiritual condition, as long as I continue these practices, I'm going to continue to feel God flowing through me. I'm continue to carry this message to other people. And then I'm not going to have these foods this, this, food, this food, food is irrelevant. My abstinence is a natural byproduct now of my recovery, a natural byproduct. So it continues after the promises. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. So the big book is telling us it is easy. It is easy when, quote, unquote, things are going our way to say, well, I don't really need to do this stuff anymore. Because the big problem for me went before I really studied the big book is when I got to my goal weight and things were going my way, I thought I didn't need to do the steps anymore. I was done with that. So it is. It's easy to let up on those spiritual programs. And this tells us here, we are headed for trouble if we do. It's warning us. For alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. So for those of you that get tinged by that word recovered, it's slamming home that we are not cured. We remain recovered, which means the obsession is removed as long as we continue to live in steps 10, 11, and 12. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. So one day at a time is not about trying to white-knuckle it through the food. One day at a time is letting me know that I have this daily reprieve and I have to continue that step 10 has to be on every moment, I, every moment um, activity that I have to, in step 11, connect with God in the morning, connect with God at night. In step 12, I have to carry this message. I have to. My life depends on it. And I have to practice these principles in all of my affairs, not just with you people on the line who I love, but with that jerk at the, at the checkout counter, the guy that cuts me off in traffic, those people at work. So the daily reprieve is there. Every day, every day is a day when we must carries the vision of God's will into all of our activities. And that vision of God, now that I'm unblocked, I can see it. Now that I am unblocked and the summit of spirit is able to travel through me out to others, I can carry God's vision, God's will, not Kim's agenda, not Kim's little plans and designs. So when I'm going through that day, I must carry that vision. And how do I do that? I say, how can I best serve thee? Thy will, thy will, God's will, not mine be done. These are thoughts that must go with us constantly, constantly, not occasionally, again, constantly. We can exercise our will along this line. So now that I'm in alignment with God's will, will in and of itself is not bad. It's self-will, it's self-centeredness, it's selfishness, it's resentment, it's fear that was bad. Now that I'm connected with God, I can utilize that will, my intuition. This is the proper use of the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength inspiration, and direction from him. What a great thing to ask for every morning. I'm going to ask for strength, inspiration, and direction from God. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. So that's the answer. Why can't I feel God? Why can't I feel God? It says, if we have carefully followed directions. Have I carefully followed directions? Have I decided the steps need to be improved? 
have I decided that maybe I, in 2013 it's a little bit different than 1939. So if we have followed directions, to some extent we have become God conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense, but we must go further and that means more action. So once again, step 10 is what we're doing throughout the day, asking God into every single moment, good, bad, indifferent. God, help me to see your will. Help me to do your will. Help me to get out of self. Help me is that spot check we do throughout the day. And then we're going to go into step 11, which is going to tell us how we can reconnect with God so the next day we can become even more God-centered, more God-centered. And I'm just going to end with page 88 again. Um, actually, bottom of 87. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. Nothing about emotions in here. We constantly remind ourselves we are no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, and foolish decisions. That's where those emotions come in. If I am constantly trying to run the show, that's when I am, I am vulnerable to all these emotions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily. So when I am working step 10 on a daily basis, I am efficient and I do not tire so easily. Um, we do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So when I am not feeling efficient, when I am exhausted, it is because I have decided once again that I am in charge and I am burning up my energy foolishly as, we, as I did when I was trying to arrange life to suit myself. And that's simply a barometer. It's a nudge from God, time to get close to me, my child. Come, come ask me. Rest in, rest in God. Rest in God. And with that, I'm so happy and grateful for all you that are listening. And I pass. Thank you very much, Kim. Now I'm pleased to welcome Victoria to the line. Good morning, Victoria. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah, and everyone on the line. I am so grateful to be in the big boat with you this morning of recovery. This is Victoria. I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this special edition has been a wonderful opportunity for me to look at the step which has become for me the great pain reliever. When I think of the 10th step, for me, it is the great pain reliever. So I am grateful to have the chance to share my experience and my stumblings with you this morning. Just a few words about the disease which dominated the first uh, five decades of my life. Um, started in early childhood, progressed over the decades. Um, I did not understand the nature of my disease. I thought that it was a problem with food. I had no understanding of what we are told in the literature, that food is but a symptom. That was completely lost on me. I saw no relationship between the turmoil and 
the problems and the despair in my life and my absolute obsession with food. Um, I, from an early age, realized that food was the thing that was going to lift me up and carry me over. There was, it was clearly my drug of choice. And as the disease progressed, there was less and less in my, in my vision of my life and food took up more and more of the space. So if I were looking out the windshield of my car driving down the road, all I would be seeing would be my binge foods. And that would have been that would have been wonderful for me. I um I progressed to the point where I had a recurring dream where it was after some kind of banquet and I was in a huge kitchen with all, everything left over, everything I could want. And I was stuffing it in my mouth as fast as I could. But what my mind was saying was, but there's not enough. There won't ever be enough. No matter how fast I stuff it in, there's still this empty place that won't ever be filled. I could feel it. Um, my closet was filled with six or seven sizes that I would cycle through regularly. I was a single mother of a young child who much of the time was blotto in the food. I was not like, like any drunk, anybody strung out on their drug of choice. My concern for him, my connection for, with him was regularly cut off as I lost myself in what became for me the most important aspect of my life, and that was feeding myself my drug of choice. It became more important than anything else. Now, as I was, to give you some idea where it progressed to, I... I um, developed uh, migraines, which were so severe they would take me into the ER. They were directly related to the food I ingested, particularly um, chocolate. And that did not stop me because I, I couldn't stop. And I reached a point where I knew I couldn't stop on my own. I had actually, at a certain point, uh, when the pain became so great, I had attempted to stop. I attempted to moderate and then to stop, and I never succeeded. I always failed. On one of those trips um, to the ER, I was so sick from having consumed boxes, literally boxes, of uh, my drug of choice that I asked my partner to stop the car. We were on an eight-lane in city freeway because I had to throw up. And I remember standing along the side of the road, not because I was bulimic, but because I was so sick from what I had forced into my body. And I was standing along the side of the road, daylight, with all this traffic going by me, throwing up. I felt so humiliated um, being seen in this degraded way. But I could not, I could not stop. I came to recovery on April 14th 
of 2002. God willing, I will celebrate 11 years of continuous abstinence on April 14th of this year. And my life has been catapulted into the fourth dimension over these years. And the tenth step, because I've finished my first four through nine, within the first six months of coming in in 2002, the tenth step is what has carried me uh, into that and kept me in that fourth dimension. And as I said, for me, the tenth step I've come to view as the great pain reliever because when I am disturbed, when I am in a state of inner pain, I have learned through this step that there is always something wrong with me. Now, when I came in, that idea was absurd. Um, I believed most of what I was told because I had the gift of desperation and I was willing to do whatever I was asked to do. But there is no way I believed whenever I was disturbed there was something wrong with me, which is what we're told in the 10th step, in the 12 and 12. Um, experience and working the steps has taught me that is exactly true. And whenever I find myself irritable, restless, discontent, whenever I have an anguish in me that will not stop, whenever I experience the pain that has no name, I know it's time for me uh, to take personal inventory. I'm not saying I'm jumping up and down about the opportunity, but I don't hesitate anymore because it is the way out for me of whatever pain which I've come to find myself. So as Kim was talking about, the big book in its single paragraph on page 84 gives us a very clear set of instructions. I love this about the big book. We watch for selfishness, dishonesty, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When they crop up, not if, when, they crop up a lot in my life. We ask God to remove them at once. We discuss this with someone immediately, and this step was so important for me. It was always um, humbling. It was I could always feel my ego being punctured whenever I honestly, openly shared um, what was wrong with me with somebody else. And that's come to mean to me more ego reduction, more freedom. More ego reduction equals more freedom because that has been my experience. So I submit to ego reduction in all the forms that it takes. In this case, immediately telling someone about it, honestly, openly. It's like walking around in shoes that are five sizes too small. But on the other side of that pain of ego reduction is more freedom. Then the last step, we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. You know, to normal leaders, that might seem like a very strange instruction, but to me, it was exactly what I needed because I had so little self-restraint. The 12 and 12 on page 91 talks about emotional booby traps that are baited with pride and vengefulness. And I'm here to tell you, those were the behaviors I majored in. Um, you know, the irony is, is I, I saw myself as being a victim of other people and a victim of life. 
as I majored in these behaviors, these booby traps that are described on page 91, the unkind tirades, the quick-tempered criticism and furious argument. And I've been blessed with the intelligence and speaking skills to lacerate other people, and I did. My professional life was riddled with what the 12 and 12 calls big shotism. And at first glance, I thought, oh, that, I'm a woman. You know, I don't have aspirations to be a big shot. But the truth was, I had aspirations to be the exceptional one, the one who stands out about all the, above all the others. And there was not enough praise. There was not enough prestige. There was not enough approval and affection for me. So I, that's how I went through life. And I didn't see it had any relationship to food. I'll give you an example of that failure of self-restraint um, in the before recovery, several decades before, I had a professional position in an office and I um, fairly responsible position. And I got a call from a colleague who castigated me for involving myself in something related to her program and warned me not to do that again. And she let me know she was very angry about it. I don't remember. You know, what I do remember is I was trying to be helpful. Uh, well, you know, that may well have been one more attempt to garner prestige, let me rescue you so I become val more valuable. It may have been entirely inappropriate. But the thing I remember is the absolute emotional immaturity that characterized my response. I closed the door to my office and I started throwing everything that was on the surface. I didn't make a sound. I didn't speak a word. Anything I could pick up, files, books, I threw it at the floor. I threw it at the walls. I was absolutely incensed. You know, and it never occurred to me, this is what two-year-olds do. This is, what, this is how two-year-olds act when they are frustrated by the behavior of others, by having limits set. Um, I, it never occurred to me that I had a problem because I felt victimized by that response. So that's the kind of condition I was in um, when I finally was willing to go to any lengths to gain freedom from the food, first of all, but as it turns out, also freedom from emotional binges that characterized my my life. Um, it's, it's really no accident that the very next paragraph um, after describing, in the big book, after describing how to do personal inventory, promises me sanity and defines what it is, that I will be safe and protected, that I will not want to pick up that first bite. I won't care about it. And that has been my experience. That has been my experience. Food has not been a problem for me since three months into turning my will and my life over and following the directions of those who found a way out. It has not called my name. Now, I have had all kinds of other issues to deal with, 
stay sober. And the 10th step has given me an opportunity to do that. The 12 and 12 um, elaborates personal inventory in a way that was very helpful to me. It, It told me that the 10th step was going to become how I put my AA way of life into into practical use. That was it, this 10th step. It was how I was going to live this way of life under all conditions, in fair weather or foul. And then it tells me I had an acid test by which to evaluate how I was doing. Could I stay sober? Number one. Number two, could I keep a Victoria Star. I think I'm hearing the menu. Okay, you're back. Thank you. Okay, Laura, thank you. Uh, So, can I keep emotional balance? And finally, can I live to good purpose under all conditions? And good purpose was not about, going to be about me. It was going to be about others. So, 12 and 12 also gives me some new features and possibilities besides the day's end inventory. It talks about the spot check inventory, which is what I use most of the time now. I do it end of the day inventory, but that's about creating a new consciousness in me when I'm told people or new events throw me off balance and tempt me to make mistakes so that I'm better equipped to practice self-restraint. Um, it also tells me that I will be inventorying my assets as well as my problems. I thought that might not be a good idea because I had spent a whole life avoiding identifying my character defects. But what I found is identifying my assets was important because that was going to let me know whether I was living the code the 10th step talks about, my code of of love and tolerance. And if I couldn't recognize it in my own behavior, I would not know if I was loving it. And that was the standards. So let me share some examples recently uh, in my life that where I've worked this step, this spot check inventory. Recently, there was an um, a situation at work that involved conflict among many people and someone initially took a position that I thought was totally out of bounds and it was in relation to me and um, I became, I started to feel very justified in my position and that is the most dangerous thing for me in working this step. Anytime I feel justified in my position, I know I've got one foot in hot water because then it sets off an emotional reaction that tells me, you know, I'm on higher ground. I'm right, and uh, my expectations are justified. What I learned in that situation, not too far into it, and I had some amends to make, is that the principles are always more important than the point. Whatever point it is I have to make, my spiritual principles that I live by are always going to be more important than that point. And that point will take me off the deep end, especially if I feel justified in it. 
also recently another experience that I had um, was with my partner uh, who I thought was wrong. And I, instead of going to going with the feelings, I was able to practice that restraint of tongue, to exercise the pause, which has been so important in practicing this step, and using words that expressed empathy and recognition of my partner's reality, not just mine, before in a very kind and loving way, setting a boundary that I needed to set. Recently, in a big meeting, I was given a great deal of recognition. There was talk of she should have a plaque, she should, you know, and, and clapping. And you know, I would have died for that kind of recognition uh, before recovery. Now it's nice when it comes, but it's just not what I'm going for. But I found myself uncomfortable with that and <clears throat> realized shortly after that time, I did not say thank you, um, which let me know I was back in reverse pride. I, was, I had forgotten just for a little while, I am only a channel here. All of the work you see, everything I've accomplished, it does not belong to me. It has only happened because of the grace that comes to me through these steps and allows me to be what I could never be on my own. So those are a few examples of how I use it, have used it recently. Um, also, there are some related issues. Uh, let me find my notes here that I just want to talk a little bit about um, in working this step. One was I was fortunate to have a sponsor who reminded me to stay out of morbid reflection because it would limit my effectiveness to others. I do not have the luxury to grovel. As my current sponsor says, when I face backsliding or I see a new variation of my character defect, and if I express some disappointment or demoralization, she simply said, why are you surprised? In other words, Victoria, get real. You know, you're not God yet. Uh, you may have a few years of recovery, but this is an ongoing process. Um, I will always have character defects that will cause trouble in my life as well as the lives of others. But thank God, recovery is also progressive. I am not making my, my behavior in the world, my motives have been transformed. I have had a change of heart. I desire to be of service. I desire to be useful. I feel profoundly satisfied in that. And when I backslide, um, it's not pretty. It's still not pretty because the bar is higher. The bar is higher. What was acceptable to me before, in fact, what even flew under my radar before, would be outrageous to me today. And what <clears throat> catches my attention, because we're told we must keep growing spiritually, are what my character defects today, the form they are taking, is different. Is different. But they're still very much there. Um, you know? As somebody said, 
the monkey's off my back, but the circus is still in town. And that's very much true <clears throat> about my defects of character. I don't, I don't feel the kind of demoralization that I used to, even though I recognize at the eighth step, at the seventh, or the eighth year, the ninth year, occasionally I'm still doing one of those deep inventories where I've struck another vein of a defective character that's defined my personality. And I've got a lot more digging to do and step work to do. Um, I am able to accept that today, not as a reflection of a problem in my program, but ongoing evidence that my disease is doing push-ups in the next room and that I have a reprieve from the destructive behavior that I majored in, the very self-centered motives that I measured in for 24 hours at a time. And I need to rely on my, uh, the consciousness of my ongoing um, personal inventory to relieve the pain and to become more free. And with that, I'll pass. Victoria, thank you so much for that thorough explanation of your experience with Step 10. And thank you to all the panelists this morning, Rebecca, Kim, and Victoria, for your time sharing with us this morning how you implement this step in your lives. Now we will open the floor up for any questions anyone might have regarding Step 10. You can unmute by pressing star 1. Who would has the first question this morning. Again, star one to unmute. This is Susan. I can get us started if you like. <laughs> Jump in, Susan. Thank you. The water's warm. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Leah, as always, and the three women who I absolutely loved hearing each and every one of you. Um, this question is related to step 10, and yet it's not. It's also it's just related to all the steps and the work that's vital for us to do on a daily basis if we want to recover, or in your case, remain recovered. So, and I'm sorry for the wind and background noise on that side, but um, the question is how you stay motivated. And, you know, you guys, have, it's been a while since you've been in, uh, in the food, and, uh, and I recognize that those character defects still rear their heads, um, but it's been a while. So what keeps you motivated? And Kim, I heard you reference the big book and that we ask God to discipline us. So there is the reminder that the discipline doesn't come from within. And Victoria, you spoke about the pain 
I, I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly if I'm quoting right, but something to the effect of it's, it's a necessity. I mean, you know, that, that the, you know what, I'm not going to keep going on. My question is how you stay, uh, how you stay motivated to keep doing the work. Thanks, and I'll mute. Thank you, Susan. Panelists, who would like to respond first? Oh, this is Victoria. I can respond to that. Thank you. At least the first response. Um, what a wonderful question, how to stay motivated. Um, as our recovery progresses, it's a really important question. And for me, uh, I have to remember who I am. Number one, I cannot forget who I am in all of its ugliness and its glory. And I have to remember that who I am involves a life and death disease. If I forget that, um, if I, you know, if I think to myself, yeah, if I had cancer, I'd show up for the chemo treatments, but this isn't cancer. This is compulsive eating. I don't have to show up. I'm in trouble. I cannot afford to forget this is a life and death disease over which I am powerless. Um, it's also true for me at this point in my recovery that, um, you know, I have a whole different life. I have, every day I have more to lose. Every day I have more to lose, but frankly, that's not going to protect me. I've got, I've started working with a new sponsee recently, and I have just been thanking God for what that's giving me. I mean, I need to hear my disease by carrying the message and other people. I need to hear myself reflected back. This is somebody I'm sponsoring with, with many years of, uh, in recovery who is now struggling with the issue you raise. Do I have to do this? And knows intellectually if she doesn't do it, she's dead in the water. And I am thinking to myself, you know, this is my disease I'm listening to. Um, so also another way um, a wise member of the fellowship long ago said, take a couple of newcomers under your wing, not just those you're sponsoring, not talking about sponsoring here, but newcomers whom you're there with extra time, support. You know, you really stay connected with them. Um, I don't know why it works that way, but for me, it's one of the best ways to let me remember who I am and this incredible miracle I have been given and how on any given day I can decide to start walking toward the food and off the path. So I'll pass. Thank you, Victoria. Other panelists, would you like to respond to the question of what keeps you motivated? This is Kim. I can go. Thank you. Um, you know, I think one thing I want to say is this is why it's so essential that we do the steps in order. Because it is only when we truly know the futility and fatality of this disease, we truly do step one and we understand that our very lives depend on the surrender that we are propelled to step two. And when we do step two and we understand that we need God 
We need God because we are beyond human power. That lack of power is our dilemma. It propels us to step three. And we are at step three and we are truly making that decision. We are propelled to take action, which is step four. So that's why it's so essential. The motivation for me is when I truly do these steps according to the big book and I truly go through these directions, each step is a building block. It's going to propel me to the next step. So now that I'm recovered, I recognize that my very life depends on it. And now I have this incredible life. So it's not only about escaping this alcoholic torture, but it's that I don't want to lose the life that God has graced me with. So that is what keeps me in there. I just want to read on page 66. This is the depths we have to, to understand why it's so essential that we cannot let up. We cannot get you know, let up on our laurels. On page 66, that first paragraph, when I was talking about step four and resentment, that it is plain that life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent we permit these to be squandered the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with alcoholic, it's hope that the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. So we're going to die, infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. We're going to die. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol returns, and we drink again, and for us to drink is to die. If we were to live, for, for, if we were to live so if we don't want to die, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. We had to be free of anger. They are the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these are poisons. So once again, I'm going to die. We turn back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. So we are making that choice to let people dominate us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, so whether it's in our head or it's actually happening, has the power to actually kill it's going to kill us. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments had to be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than we did than alcohol. So when we understand that we are going to die from this, and just because I'm recovered doesn't mean I don't understand the urgency and the fact that I'm going to die from this, that's what keeps me in the work. So how do I stay in steps one, two, and three on a daily basis? I sponsor. I sponsor because every day my nose is in this book carrying this message. How do I do four through nine? I'm doing step ten every single day, which keeps me in the book. How am I staying in touch with God? I'm doing eleven. And how am I maintaining some some form of peace? I'm doing step twelve. I'm carrying the message and I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs. But ultimately, the motivation is I know I'm going to die. I am wired differently than normal people. I do not have the luxury to take a vacation for my recovery. Um, and with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And, of course, thank you, Susan, for the question. Leah, this is Rebecca. Could I Rebecca, share? please, of course, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, what a great question, Susan. Um, I was thinking what Kim said, it's a matter of life and death. I mean, that's a pretty big motivator. And in addition to that, um, 
this work is a rush for me. <laughs> it, it, the motivation is just built into the experience of doing it. Uh, the more I do it, the more I want to do it. Um, I'm thrilled <laughs> with my new life. And um, every time I um, enhance my life by doing one more thing in this program, uh, it motivates me to do another thing. Attending this meeting every day is a shot in the arm to keep me on track and keep this program in the forefront of my mind. I get inspiration from it and attending my local meetings and seeing that I have a message to carry, offering something to people who are still suffering from the very same condition I suffered from and have been recovered from. It's it's a thrill. It's like a thrill ride. I swear, Uh, sponsorship, (laughs) what I get out of sponsoring is just, you know, what it says in the big book. Um, You, in life, you get so much more back than what you give. And this program, at this point, uh, the motivation is about giving, uh, carrying the message. So um, it's a thrill. And and why are we motivated to do anything that thrills us? Because it's thrilling. <laughs> I'll pass. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you all so much. Hi, this is Beth. I have a question. Yes, please go ahead. I am a justice person. Uh, justice issues are all over my life. I, I come from an abusive background, which I'm sure that... There are very many people out there uh, who probably have the same kind of a background. Um, when you say it's the principle, not the point, and I'm trying to navigate through life and I'm trying to find peace, but there are points um, that, especially when people are taking advantage of children and my children in particular, and I know that I need to just not put them in a, you know, I I need to say, okay, if you want to use a child, you know, um, you know, God be with you because I know you are in the disease, whatever, you know, and, and just cut the losses and walk away. I just have such a hard time with that, knowing, okay, where do I ask for peace and serenity and walk away, and where do I take a stand and, and say, you know, no, this is not right, you can't do this. It's such a hard time um, with that line. Uh, we adopted a child uh, out of a horrible, horrible orphanage, and I've got a friend who's going through that process, um, trying to adopt uh, from a uh, African country, and she's just all caught up. And I'm kind of like, just pay the money and get the child home, you know. But she is all over the principal, and and I just have such a hard time. It just gets into a, f- a fuzzy line between serenity and and uh, standing up and not letting things happen. And so if you guys have any advice on navigating through life, um, not being a doormat, um, but not letting it, you know, steal your peace, I would really appreciate your advice on that. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Victoria, did you want to start us off since uh, you were the one that made that comment regarding principle not above the point? Yes, thank you so much for that question, which, um, you know, there's so much in recovery that requires discernment. Um, 
because it's 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 a simple program, but the answers aren't always easy. What I meant when I said that the the principle for me that will always be more important the principles is protecting my emotional sobriety. Um, and that's what I'm thinking of even more than serenity at that point because when I am, if I don't meet that acid test, if I am not emotionally sober, I'm not, my perceptions are distorted. I don't, I am not practicing restraint of tongue and pen. And perhaps most importantly, I am cut off from the light of the Spirit so that I cannot see clearly. To me, it doesn't mean that I'm a doormat. Um, it means, you know, that there are times when I need to say what needs to be said. And when I practice these principles, I can do it with love and tolerance in my heart. It doesn't mean I can't be strong, I can't be clear and mean business. There's a passage on page 92 on step 10 that I think speaks to this a little bit. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. I, too, come from a history of abuse and have spent a great deal of time working through those issues and to a point of forgiveness. And uh, it's, you know, it's been said forgiveness is giving up the wish that things could be different. And I... I guess the last thing I would say in response to this question is something in working the tenth step that has been critical for me, and it wasn't in working my first fourth. And that is a little prayer I say, which for me has been one of the most powerful prayers that I pray. And it, it is simply, God, help me to see what I could never see on my own. God, please help me to see what I could never see on my own. And praying that earnestly and with an open heart. Now in the step 10, that means for me, help me to see myself. Help me to see the parts I cannot see. My part in this, my character defect, how this fits with the kind of questions raising here about forgiveness. How do I forgive? What kind of limits are there? It means I go to that power and I, I count on illumination that the answers will come. They don't necessarily come in my time, but they come. And in working the 10th step, those answers have come so powerfully when I prayed this earnestly that I thought to myself, whoa, I really need to be careful when I pray this prayer. I'm getting much more here than I bargained for. So, you know, there are a lot of um, 
a lot of tough questions we face in recovery. How do we translate these principles into all our affairs? And that's what I would offer. I pass. Thank, thank you, Victoria. Any other panelists like to respond to the question? Go ahead, uh, Kim, and then Rebecca. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to enter. I'm not going to specifically um, address the specific issues, but just generally, um, is that one of the things that I have learned about dishonesty is dishonesty is not is also not telling the truth when the truth needs to be told. So it's not always about like if it being a doormat, but I have to learn that when when something is happening. And I work it through with a sponsor and I work it through with prayer and meditation. If I need to say something, then it's being dishonest not to say it. You know, and from working, I do not come from a, a history of abuse, but working with sponsees, you know, I'm going to read this actually from um, page 100 and working with others. It says, both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. And my sponsees that come from backgrounds of incest or physical abuse or emotional abuse, they have been given the gift to help people in a way I never could. Because that's not my background. That's not my experience. So in God's hands, God will turn anything, anything and everything into usefulness. You know, and when we're looking at other people, a lot of times it's tinging something in us. It's something in us that needs to be healed. So we're not going to condone something. It's not saying we're condoning it, but we have to know we cannot play God. We are not God. And I know I have, I'm thinking of one particular sponsee that worked through some, some uh, incest issues, and when she was able to realize that her father was abused and her father was beaten and her father never beat her and that her father, the best that he could do with no parenting skills was what he did, she was able to forgive him. And she's been able to help people with, with abuse backgrounds that I have never been able to do. So I have to recognize that, you know, I am here to do God's will. You know, and I love the prayer, God, save me from being angry. Save me from being angry. Give me the strength to say the words when I need to. Give me the strength to stay quiet when I need to. So that's just going to say it in a more general way, is that we cannot play God, but by doing this, these, these steps, it's not at all a passive process. I have done things I never thought I could have ever done because I've been given this strength when I align myself with God's will to handle situations that used to baffle me, as the promises said. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And Rebecca, please. Hi. Um, I was thinking about page 64 that starts talking about, um, well, it's about step four. And... Um, we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. We asked ourselves, why were we angry? In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. 
And um, I guess what I was thinking is that um, if we do the steps as they're outlined in the big book and, um, you know, use the um, method of step four, whether, you know, if you're at that point um, or when you get to that point or if you're on a step 10, you can go back and do this. Um, and you do the four through nine, you don't have to figure out what to do. Um, you just have to trust in God, and you'd be amazed um, the answers will come if your own house is in order. <laughs> and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Rebecca. And thank you for the question. Any other questions related to Step 10 this morning? Star 1 to unmute. Going once. Twice and three times. I'll assume the silence means all minds are clear regarding step 10. Thank you once again to our three panelists, Rebecca, Kim, and Victoria, for giving of your time this morning, your energy, and sharing with us how you continue to work steps four through nine in your daily life. Obviously, we're referring to step 10 this morning, step 10 this morning, uh, an absolute necessity, vital to our recovery. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And I will close the meeting in the way which A Vision for You always closes, and that's from page 164 in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, referred to as the big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.